Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this episode with Jason Dovo, I just want to take a quick second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Finding the right equipment for you is essential for ease of production and enjoyment of playing in your music making. But needing to rent or buy to try things out can be time-consuming and expensive. If you're looking for a way to learn about new horns or other equipment, check out Houghton Horns. They offer free virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians, which means that whether you live in Keller, Texas, or you live outside the United States, Houghton Horns is able to serve you. I've actually done a video that's on their YouTube channel, which I'll link in the description that you can check out where it's kind of a sample uh, virtual consultation where you can see what it looks like and the conversation, the kinds of things you can learn and stuff like that. So if you're interested, check that out. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. And welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm excited to be here with my good friend and summer colleague, uh, Jason Dovel. Jason is the associate professor at the University of Kentucky, and uh, he and I have played together at the Charlottesville Opera, I don't know, like four or five years now. I mean, I haven't kept track, but it's about got to be about that, right? That sounds about right. Yeah, it's with, you know, with that year off because of COVID, everything, I sort of, I can't, I can never keep track of, of things, but sounds about like, we're about halfway to a decade, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. It's been great to get to know Jason on these summers and um, the operas we've played, I, if I remember correctly, are not trumpet intensive, so we have some time to, <laughs> some time to chill. Um, but this is cool for me. Uh, I reached out, or I didn't reach out. We were there. I was just talking to Jason this summer saying I should interview him. And, and Jason actually was talking about this opportunity he just finished up with um, during his sabbatical that he took this past semester. So I'll let him talk about that. But it's pretty exciting. And so I can't wait to get to that. Uh, before we do any of all of that, I just want to say thank you for giving me some of your time to chat with me and to share with me and my audience a little bit about yourself. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with your backstory. Take us as far back to help us understand how you got started in music. Uh, some people, their instrument that we know them for is not the one they started on. If you have any interesting stories like that or however you got started, I'd be curious to know. Sure. Well, I grew up in the small town of Shenandoah, Virginia, which uh, is about 2,000 people or less. I think the census when I was there was about 1,800, a little small one-stoplight town. And um, my high school, uh, I guess I should start before high school. Um, I was a first-generation college student, but I did come from a musical family in that um, my mother took piano lessons. She played clarinet in high school. Uh, she's like a church pianist, you know, plays plays the hymns on Sunday morning. And her family had this really neat tradition growing up that... Um, 
they would, after dinner, gather around the piano and sing, you know? Uh, and uh, so I grew up in a musical family. And um, as a result of that, there was always music in my life. And it really wasn't until late high school that I thought it might be a career. But, um, you know, you know, my parents sang in choir. My mom played piano, clarinet. I had aunts and uncles who were musicians, not by trade, but who, you know, loved to sing. And um, when I was in first grade, inspired by my uncle Bobby, I decided to pick up the guitar and took guitar lessons. And um, this is like in the mountains in Virginia. So this was more of like a country Western kind of a thing. Yeah, sure. And a f- finger picking style and the, you know, all of that. And I did that, um, I guess from about first or second grade. Um, you know, I, I can't remember really when I stopped after I started playing trumpet, but before I played trumpet, when it came time to pick an instrument in band, I, I knew I wanted to be in band, but I, you know, you don't really play, see a lot of guitars in beginning band. <laughs> and, and so I I played percussion. Now in my band, I know today a lot of schools do it in a better way than this, but at my school, everyone started on snare drum. And I was like the smallest kid in the class and I rode the school bus. And so to lug that snare drum on and off the school bus and around the school property and home, it was just a nightmare. I hated it. And uh, I did it just for, I don't know, maybe two or three months. And I just told my parents, I'm going to quit. This is awful. And uh, so I told my band director I was going to quit and everything. And I had a buddy who was in the trumpet section. Actually, I had a few friends in the trumpet section, but one buddy in particular said, you know, you should join the trumpet section. You know, I'm in it and these other friends are in it. And it's a lot of fun. All you have to do is go (laughs) and kind of show me what to do. And I thought, oh, sure, I'll I'll try trumpet. And, um, you know, I really gravitated to it and just loved it. I remember the first, I like, I don't know if you feel this way, Ryan, but the first day I got home and like unlatched the case, it was like magic. And I played it. I just played it until like I couldn't play it anymore that first day. And what's funny, I got the instrument before I got any instruction on it. And uh, they, well, we had a student teacher at the time who was a trombone player. And I think the band director played saxophone. But anyway, I show up to the first day. And of course, by this point, it's like spring semester. Uh, you know, we uh, other kids, I mean, they're not virtuosos, but they're, you know, they know how to play a little bit. And I hadn't had any instruction yet. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to send you with the student teacher and he'll kind of show you how to put the mouthpiece in and oil the valves. I'm like, no, I think I think I know. I, I can play the C scale and everything. And of course, I played guitar already, so I understood mm-hmm. rhythms yeah, and, yeah. and scales. And so he took me to the... Uh, he's like, no, go ahead and with the student teacher, Mr. Wilson. So Mr. Wilson took me down and he was like, you're like better than all the other ones. <laughs> you can you can already play the whole scale and you can read these rhythms. And he took me back up and and put me in the section and um, and there I was. And I, I just have always loved playing. And so uh, I didn't really consider music as a career until really late in high school. I've always been more interested uh, in things like computers, science, math. Those were the subjects that I. Um, you know, excelled in in high school. I, I wasn't, I always enjoyed playing in band, but I was never like that serious at trumpet in high school. And um, funny story, um, you may know the composer, Brian Balmages. He's like famous now, but uh, he was a trumpet player who was 
like a senior at James Madison University when I was a senior in high school. And there was like this event at JMU called, uh, I forget if it was Brass Brass or the Summer the summer Brass Camp. It was one of those two events that I was at. And I said to, to Brian, uh, well, Brian said to me, he said, so you're going to come to JMU next year as a music major? And I said, well, I think I might come to JMU, but I'm not going to uh, be a music major. And he said, well, you'll never see Kleesner unless you're a music major. Kleesner was Jim Kleesner, the professor of trumpet at the time there. And, uh, and I got to thinking about, I can't get lessons unless I'm a music major. And so I thought, well, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll fool them all. I'll check the box that says I'm going to be a music major and, and, uh, and I'll get lessons. And then once I, you know, once I sound like Maurice Andre, then I'll just go ahead and graduate with my computer engineering degree. <laughs> and that was kind of the plan I had in high school. It wasn't a particularly great plan. Um, and actually, JMU was the only school I applied to. So I, I really didn't think this whole thing through really well. But once I got to JMU and once I um, got in lessons, I, I just sort of knew it's what I had to do. And so that's how I guess I got from birth to college and being a trumpet player. That's, it's, it's an amazing sort of like you weren't even thinking about it really because, you know, the, the mentality I think sometimes can be it's like you have to decide as early as possible. I've been in discussions with musicians where – you know, somebody will hold, especially for things like string instruments, you got to start when you're like five, if you're going to have any chance of any amount of success. So you're similar to me where I enjoyed playing the trumpet, but it wasn't really till yeah, around senior year in high school where I was like, well, maybe I could do this like in college or whatever. And I find those stories to be uh, very encouraging because it shows that, you know, it doesn't have to be like obvious or like a, well, this is the only possible thing that I could have done. You know, it's like you had other options and music was a, a one that you sort of just after trying it kind of so sounds like you can correct me if I'm wrong, but almost as if it was like, I didn't even realize I would like this as much as I ended up liking it. Um, so it's a good thing that you ended up sort of falling into it in that way. Absolutely. Totally. I think, you know, that, you know, when you go to music school, there's um, a very social aspect of that, social practicing, hanging out with music majors. And I feel like once I immerse myself being around crazy musicians all the time, I kind of found my people a little bit, you know, and, <laughs> and found the environment that I, that I would want it to be in. I think we should, I'd love to talk to you about this, actually, because it's, I, I don't know if it's like a, a topic of discussion a lot, but I think some people uh, are having a discussion and wondering you know, what would be the value of a full-on music education if you walk away and all it says, you know, for a performance degree specifically, that you can perform, which you could do without a degree, right? Like, I've heard that before. And then there's this idea of like, well, what if I just didn't go to college and I just took a bunch of lessons? Would I still be the same player, you know? And like, in my mind, you could rationalize possibly, right? So I'd be curious. I mean, you're obviously in it. This is like what you do. And also what you just said kind of made me think about these extra things you get by being in that environment. I'm curious, what's your take on what you get from uh, education, from like pursuing a performance or a, uh, an education degree at an institution that you wouldn't be able to get if you were just taking lessons and doing that kind of thing? Yeah. You know, um, there's a, a famous quote by Georges Majere, the former principal trumpet of the, of the Boston Symphony, that there are no good teachers, there are only good students. And um, I have that quote 
is the first line of my syllabus actually at UK. Just in case I suck, you know, in a lesson or something, and can't <laughs> just cover your base, cover my bases. But what, what, I, where I'm going with this is that is that that culture that you get with your colleagues um, in a music school, um, there's no replacement for that. No matter where you go to school, no matter who your teacher is, surrounding yourself with positive people who are curious and hungry about music. Um, and being in that immersive environment, there's no substitute for that. Along those same lines, if I ever have a student who says to me, I don't know what to do next year, I'm going to take a year off, I'm going to move home with my parents and just practice a lot, I usually discourage them from doing that. I usually feel like isolating yourself in a practice room for a year is not the way to grow as a musician. And um, I feel like, you're right, you don't really need uh, a, a music degree I should say this, historically, you don't really need a music degree to win an audition. However, auditions are getting um, more selective. You know, we have a uh, the second trumpet in Louisville is, is open right now, and I have a few students who are interested, and the first thing they have to do is send their resume, you know what I mean? So I think we are going to a place where maybe you do need a music degree to win an audition, or, or at least to get invited to an audition. But you're right, behind the screen, it doesn't matter what kinds of degrees you have or where you went to school. But in a way, it does matter because where you went to school and what you studied in college affects the people that you are around, the sounds um, that you hear. My teacher at North Texas, Keith Johnson, said, we as trumpet players, we don't produce sound. We reproduce sound. We reproduce the sounds that we've heard. And where you go to school, I know you went to great schools and had great colleagues who are now doing big things. And part of your growth as a musician was hearing their sounds and learning to reproduce those sounds. And of course, the sounds of your teachers as well. But um, being around great colleagues and being in, in that environment uh, is so positive. And, and of course, the, the, the flip side of that is true. If you're the kind of person who's surrounding yourself by people who are always griping about music, griping about how bad auditions are and how unfair it is, and griping about how no one comes to concerts anymore. If you're surrounding yourself by people like that, you know, that's not good. And uh, that can drag you down just in the same way that surrounding yourself by positive, curious, energetic people is a positive thing. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind, I totally agree. And I think the environment you're in, I don't think you have to look very far anywhere to talk about, you know, like you hear this about gyms, like you want to get into a gym where you're not the strongest person, right? If you're the strongest person in the gym, you're not getting stronger anymore, that kind of idea. So one of the things then, especially with something related to music school is, you know, it's like a, it's a, uh, I guess anybody could transfer, I guess, but the idea of like, where you're at at a certain point in time will dictate where you're going to spend the next four years and not every environment. I mean, hopefully every environment is positive in terms of the people there, but not every environment is equivalent in terms of the sounds being produced, right? Like not, there's spectrums of ability levels and things like that. So what is, I mean, how do we encourage people who maybe they audition for a place and at that point in time, their skills were not developed enough to be at a certain place that, you know, whatever. Um, and so they're not surrounded by maybe tons of sounds that they would emulate or would want to. You know, I'm, does this question make sense? Like, how do we, yeah, where totally. do they find their motivation? Where do they find their ability to grow if it's not necessarily in the environment around them? Well, as much as possible to try to go to live concerts and, and hear great performers 
Um, if you're like me and you're in, like I was in in high school in the mountains of Virginia, sometimes it's it's um, maybe a long drive to do that. I would sometimes drive to D.C. to hear the National Symphony Orchestra, uh, and, which is like a two-hour drive or whatever. But um, So you can go try to hear live music that's at a high caliber. Recordings are, of course, um, uh, great and can be a great way of listening. Um, but the longer I'm in this business the more I believe that hearing music live is more important than listening to recordings. Um, re- listening to recordings alone is not enough. We could get into the science of how like recordings don't really capture trumpet in the right way, which is a whole big can of worms. But <laughs> I think you have to be there in the moment, in the room, to hear those sounds. It affects you in a different way than listening to Spotify on your phone. You know, it's different. Uh, another way you can surround yourself is to find, whether it be events like ITG conferences, historic brass society conferences, national trumpet competition, uh, summer events. You know, uh, I do a summer event every summer at UK where we have people come in from all over. And there, of course, mine's not the only one. There, there are many of others. Uh, and and so to, to try to get around people, I mean, I, I grew up in a town of one stoplight town of 2,000 people. And I occasionally was able to get out and hear people that were really high level. And um, I think, you know, this day and age, no one is too far away. Maybe if you're like in central Wyoming or something, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no one is really too far away uh, from from hearing great players. And, you know, I, I'm mostly talking about like going to concerts and, and conferences and stuff. But that could even include getting lessons. And I don't mean getting a Zoom lesson from someone five states away. I mean like actually going and playing for them in person. Um, we've we've all had the struggles of taking or giving Zoom lessons and that limitation. But um, I mentioned driving up to hear the National Symphony, something else I would do, not really often, but a few times in high school I drove up. Actually, my parents drove me up and I got lessons with Steven Hendrickson, who at the time was the principal trumpet of NSO. And um, that was eye-opening. It, it was crazy for me to be in high school and have people talk about playing Mahler Five and t- sharing their empirical knowledge of having actually done it. And it, it, it sort of made me believe, wow, like this is not just theoretical. People actually do it. They pay, get paid to do it. And they like pay their mortgage this way. This is pretty cool. I think maybe I want to try to do that. I think that's such a cool perspective that you would have your eyes open in that way. And I'm so then the next for me, the next question is that you've had these experiences and you uh, think that it especially your own experiences in college and the environment helping kind of guide you toward that. This is the career path. What is it like for you as a teacher? Uh, you know, Whiff Rudd has done a lot of, you know, writing and, and, and stuff about this book, just building community. What does that look like for you? How do you try to do that? Do you have events where everybody gets together? Like, are you talking about this actively? Do you just happen to get students that just gel really well together? What happens when a student doesn't? You know what I mean? If there's personality conflicts, I'm just curious for like your take on how you try to cultivate this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, one way is, you know, today was the first day of class and often on the first day of class when we meet as a studio, I talk like things about that Majer quote about there only being good students. And I always take time the beginning of each semester to talk about the importance of uh, positive reinforcement. I always tell students things like, you know, 
sleep eight hours every night, eat three meals uh, a, a day, try to get some exercise on a regular basis, take care of yourself, take care of your friends, those kinds of things that should come before Trumpet, I believe. And uh, and then at UK, we're really lucky in that the way the schedule is set up, I see the students basically every day. Um, what I mean by that is Mondays and Wednesdays, we have a studio meeting that's officially on the book's Trumpet Ensemble, um, but we don't always use it for that purpose. We might have a guest artist come in on those days. Thursday is is Trumpet Studio Class, and Friday's officially on the books is Baroque Trumpet Ensemble. But we use those times kind of flexibly. But we, I basically see all the students four times a week as a group. And then I, of course, see them for the lesson too. So I see, see everybody about every every day. And so that, by having everyone together on a regular basis, that helps. Um, one thing, we have a very active chap um, uh, student organization called the UK Trumpet Guild that is both official UK student government association organization and a chapter of the International Trumpet Guild. They have their whole their own meetings. I rarely go. They do their own thing. They they plan special events and movie nights, and they go to pumpkin patches and fundraisers and all kinds of stuff like that. So that is a really good a social opportunity. It's almost like a fraternity or a sorority, you know, kind of the way they the way you use it. And and so that's a real positive thing. I think the other thing that helps at UK to build community is that a lot of the students who not everybody, but I would probably say a half to two thirds of the students who come to UK, either I already know them pretty well, or they already know some of the other students uh, pretty well. Meaning like maybe they came to my summer camp for a summer or two, or maybe they um, took lessons from me, uh, even though they lived a state away and why they came for lessons, they sat in on a couple studio classes or whatever. Like I, I have a, um, a lot of students that are kind of already, I was just joking today about, um, a high school student who came for a lesson last week and he mentioned one of my current students and I just I I was joking it was the second time that had happened in the past couple of weeks uh, and I told my student they're famous and my student was like how do they know me you know, so, <laughs> so sometimes there's there's uh yes there are some like in infrastructure reasons why uh, how I try to build community but to a certain extent not always um actually this year's freshman class were students, with one exception, who like didn't study with me in high school, um, didn't really know them till their audition. Uh, but that being said, we've been in a pandemic the last two years, sure, so it's been yeah. a little weird. Uh, but uh, but they've um, assimilated really well, and it's become a you know community very quickly. But uh, yeah, those are some of the ways I guess that I try to cultivate a community. Yeah, I remember in undergrad and grad school, our community was great. It was built on a on a bed of partying, you know. <laughs> um, but it was a great community. We all seemed to want to work hard to be better, and we would sometimes have like listening parties, and you know, we would all be around the practice rooms at a similar time. And to be honest, it's even one of the reasons I've sort of gone down the road I've gone with all this gold method stuff is losing that is a big deal when you leave school. You know, it's like you're in this environment where you're constantly around people who want to be better. And so even when you're kind of demotivated, you're around other people who are motivated and hopefully that helps you and you have access to teachers and you're in ensembles. There's just like the train is moving forward. And then when you leave, it's like all of a sudden, all of those external forces are gone. And so are there... 
are there things in your teaching that you uh, actively try to sort of bring about too and say like, hey, this is all really great, but these things are going to be important for when you leave here so that you can continue growing, you can continue doing it? Or do you sort of take the approach that students will kind of just figure that out once they're in the real world, they'll find themselves? Like, what's your approach there? You know, at UK, I try to, as much as possible, involve and include the alumni uh, in the success of the studio. Um, For example, uh, you know, we just, uh, I was on sabbatical, but um, uh, when I was on sabbatical, I wanted to keep the Baroque Trumpet Ensemble going. And, um, you know, that's kind of a different can of worms. You don't just pass, neither of my two sabbatical replacements really do Baroque Trumpet. So I had one of my alumni, Jared Wallace, who's at Eastman right now, like uh, he just zoomed in and actually lectured and helped run a couple of rehearsals. And um, it was easy to set that up because um, uh, my new TA went to Eastman and and actually studied with Jared, uh, who was the TA at the time. And so involving people like that, I mentioned the summer camp. I often have alumni coming back uh, and teaching at the summer camp. Uh, this summer, Steve Siegel and Marissa Youngs, who are both, you know, they left Kentucky and and they have their own college jobs now. But I, I think it's it, it's it helps in a couple of ways. Uh, first, it's really inspiring, I think, for the younger students to see people like Jared and Steve and Marissa. And I'm just saying the first names that come to my head. There are many others, but um, it'll, I'm always afraid of leaving people out when I talk <laughs> yeah, about great yeah. students. Yeah, um, I'm I'm leaving out many great students, but like when students, and then students will talk about like, wow, you know, Marissa said this, or Jared said this. And so, uh, so I think what that does is with the UK Trumpet Studio is not just something that's like in real time, like what we're doing right now. It's something that's you know, it, 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 it lives on beyond uh, the graduation time. And I had, uh, it's funny, th- this has not really happened before, but I was on sabbatical. So I didn't really like pick all the jury pieces and stuff like that. And just today I was visiting with a student and I was like, so what'd you play in your jury last semester? And the piece he played was a piece by one of my former students, Michael Cotton, Song Cycle for Trumpet. <laughs> wow. And it was just so amazing. So, you know, trying to have the alumni involved and allow the alumni to continue to uh, polish their skills by teaching at UK and coming back and sharing their real world experience, but also allowing the, uh, kind of like with me and Steve Hendrickson, looking at Steve Hendrickson and say, okay. If they can do it, maybe I can do it. And I think I think it's very inspirational to the uh, to the young students to see. You know, I know there's it's really hard, and I got to practice, and I got to take an audition. But I just met this guy, and he was just here a couple years ago, and he did it. So maybe I can too. And I I think that helps with a a sense of community and 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 all that. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's really cool. Uh, you've mentioned. Uh, this is going to be a left turn, but you mentioned a few times this quote by Majere, which is there are no, if I have it right, there are no great teachers, just great students, right? That's the quote. That's it. All right. What's your interpret? I kind of want to talk about this for a second. What's your interpretation? Like, what do you, when you hear that, like what goes through your head about what he meant by that? Sure. Well, the way I, uh, the reason I use it is I feel it means to me that no matter how good or how bad the information is from your teacher, or no, how, no matter how dedicated or disconnected your teacher is, um, ultimately, your progress is up to you. And, um, you know, there's the, a similar uh, statement 
forget if this is Gandhi or who said this, but when the when the when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm. I think it's a kind of a similar statement. And um, you know, I've had students who I have just poured myself into and and pulled every trick and every tool out of my tool bag to help and care for them and teach them, and they have floundered and fallen off the face of the earth. And then there have been there have been students for whom I thought, man, that was like the worst lesson I ever taught. All I did was <laughs> ramble. And then and then they go out and get into the best grad school in spite of my lackluster teaching or whatever, you know? And so I really feel that students, I mean, don't get me wrong. This is not me saying that I don't want to be involved in the student success. I do. But I think the students need to have a curiosity and ownership of their own development. It was convenient to have that in the syllabus last semester when I was in Greece for the, for the <laughs> semester. And, and so for them to say, look, their teacher might be gone right now, but you know, you can be your own best teacher. But I think this is important because, you know, even though a college degree is four years or a master's is two years, really that's just the blink of an eye. It's it's so fast. And I want to train my students to become independent independent listeners, independent thinkers, independent performers. Um, and and um, I want them to know from the very beginning that I care about them and want them to be better and, and be great, but that they have to really be invested themselves as well. So that's a beautiful answer. Uh, and I totally agree. Obviously, it can't be overstated. And so I, I think that's just, it's it's an important part of the equation, right? that like the effort that we put into it is what we're going to get back out of it. One issue though, I can see, and I'm just going to present it and see what you have to say about it is you, you could possibly see how it takes the onus off of the teacher to come up with increasingly creative ways to solve problems. And it just saying like, well, it can just be that you didn't, you're just, you know, you didn't get it or whatever, right? Like it can take, it can take it off of the teacher and put it onto the student. And, I would argue that some of this gold method stuff came because like I put the onus so much on myself to come up with like this. I'm going to make it so this student has like no excuse. You know what I'm saying? And it led to this level of creativity. I'm curious where you think the balance is of like how how like do you just push as far as possible? And then if the student doesn't get it in the time that you have together, well, that's unfortunate. Or is there a point where you're like, I've done everything I can do. You know, is there, how does that work basically? Where is that balance between those two things? Sure. Well, I would say that that quote specifically we're talking about is just an overarching reminder that the students uh, should be responsible for their own progress. But if I were to break it down uh, in more of a Ryan Beach systematized kind of a way, uh, I would say that for freshmen, like 99% of the ownership of what they do in the practice room, I try to pretty much take over. Like I I pretty much want them to be playing what I assign. I don't really want the freshmen going off and getting seven other etude books unrelated to what we do. I pretty much uh, give them a pretty systematized thing and I want them to do what I'd have them do. And and there's a real reason for everything. And, and, and I, I don't want them to deviate from that too much. But over the course of four years... I want to sort of hand that ownership back to them so that by the time they're a senior and they're choosing their senior recital, I will want them to have attended live concerts, listened to recordings, sought lessons from other teachers, all those things, so that they have their own opinions about what pieces they want to play, 
what repertoire is out there and their own opinions about, um, you know, uh, what's the best way for them to warm up. Usually every year I'll, I'll take students through, you know, my warm up routine and I'll tell all the students, try this. This is what I do. Um, try it for a few weeks. If you hate it, you don't have to do this, you know, but I want you to try it. And here's the reasons why I do it. And it's curious, a, a lot of them, probably most of them, they don't do it. I mean, they don't continue doing it for the rest of their career. But uh, I, I want to start, I begin with the students. So to, I guess to answer your question, at the beginning, it's like a highly involved, highly managed uh, teacher ownership kind of experience that I hope over the course of five, uh, four um, years or so, I kind of hand that ownership uh, back. And I'm talking about undergrads. Grad students are a little different, and they come with at such uh, different backgrounds. S- sometimes, uh, you know, a master's student, I really have to take a lot of ownership at the very beginning and and do like kind of like an undergrad. And 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 sometimes I don't. Um, same with doctoral students. But um, yeah, I, I think it depends on the level of student. You know what I mean? And um, I I I hope that I can inspire the students to not only want to have ownership and getting better, but to have a curiosity for what's the best way. I think it was, I think it was Wynton Marcellus that said one time to learn a musical instrument is to learn thyself. Hmm. And uh, he, he said that back when I lived in Oklahoma and he came to my old school and did a master class. And I, that's always stuck with me a little bit talking about like, you know, not every strategy works for every person in the same way. And yes, I take ownership of those lessons with those freshmen, but together we have to learn how they're going to get better and what practice strategies will get them from point A to B and C and, and Z. Yeah. I, you don't need my approval, but I think that's a really awesome way to do it. You know, I, I love that you're, that you're talking about, I'm sharing this with you. I think you should do it because it works for me and it might work for you, but but I mean, and I try to do the basically a similar thing. I don't care if people do exactly what I do, but I have good reasons for doing what I do. It's not just some random thing that I picked up and started doing. It was like, this is why I'm doing it. And you could sort of, I always think of it as using it as, as a jumping off point. It's like, start here and then adjust this thing to create your own, because I think it's just a much more efficient way to impart information because they don't have to go through all the trial and error you went through. To figure all that out. So <laughs> I think it's a great, I mean, again, you don't need my approval, but I think it's an awesome way to, to do it. So, um, all right. Tell us about Greece, right? Greece. That's right. Yeah. I was in Greece. Uh, so uh, this past semester, I took a one semester sabbatical leave from the University of Kentucky. It's actually my 15th year of teaching. I told my students today, I've never really wanted to take a sabbatical I've never wanted to give the keys to the castle to another professor. I've never wanted to, uh, you know, leave my comforts of my house for a whole semester. I've never wanted to do that. But, uh, you know, with the pandemic being t- a year and a half, two years long, and I have traveled a little bit, but not so much, not like I like to, um, the opportunity to go abroad for a semester was just one I felt I couldn't turn down. So for those of you interested in higher ed, or even other positions that give you a sabbatical, my advice is do it. I told my students today, this is my 
15th year, so it's my 30th semester start, and I've never had as much energy for the new semester as I do right now. I'm just so pumped about coming back to work. It's great. So I took a semester off. I went to the island of Corfu. Corfu um, is west of mainland Greece and east of Italy. It's a large island. I believe, um, I think it's the second largest Greek island. Greek has like, you know, a gazillion islands and it's <laughs> one of the big ones. And uh, the university there, Ionian University, is the first uh, Greek institution of higher education. And it's the most picturesque place possible. If you're listening, you know, just Google the old fortress uh, in Corfu, Greece, or just, you know, Google Corfu. It's beautiful. But the university, the, the music school is like on the water, on an old fortress, uh, blue water, and and then uh, on the other side of the blue water are the mountains of mainless, mainland Greece, <laughs> which are just rocky and giant. It it is just, I, I can't describe it, and I you can't even really look at it. You have to go there. I mean, you can't just a Google search will give you a. a, a it's like it's like we said before, live music versus recordings. Sure, sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, you have to go there, and so um, so I was, I taught trumpet there. Uh, there were about 10 trumpet students uh, there. And uh, UK, we usually have more like 25 to 30. So it was, a lot of people have said to me, why did you like go to another school on sabbatical? Who does that? Right. And I was like, trust me, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a hard, it wasn't a lot of hard work. It was great. It was like a vacation. So uh, I could teach all those students in like two days and then have the rest of the week to go to the beach, go hiking. Um, eat great food, um, visit with the locals. Uh, this is my fifth trip to Greece, so I, I now have a lot of contacts in Greece and um, got to visit with people who are now old friends of mine. And so um, I taught trumpet lessons um, uh, and um, did a weekly studio class, played a recital. Um, I also do a bit of composing, so I kind of spoke to the composition classes a little bit about the music I'd written and mainly talk to them about what you shouldn't do when you're writing for trumpet, you know, <laughs> yeah. like writing three pages of no rest and stuff right, like right. that. Harmon muted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and stuff like that. I did a little bit of Baroque trumpet, but not much, uh, not much while I was there. And uh, so that was the bulk of it. I also um, have a friend, uh, Andre Bonici, who's a colleague on the ITG board of directors. And he put to, put together for me a really nice tour of France, uh, not on the bike, uh, not on the bicycle, but on the trumpet. And uh, I went to the Lyon Conservatory, the Tours Conservatory, and the Montluçon Conservatory. Did recitals at each of those schools and did master classes and lessons and stuff like that. And that was great. Um, I had never been to France, other than like layovers at the airport. I've never been to France. And Doval is actually French, Duval of the Valley. And my ancestors were, uh, were French. And so I felt like I was kind of going to the homeland. I, mm. I, I mentioned before growing up in the mountains of Virginia. And as I was driving around France, it reminded me so much of the Blue, the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah. And um, it was really beautiful. So yeah, that's the Reader's Digest version of what I did last <laughs> semester. Uh I I mean, were there any, I mean, to me, 
music would be music, right? The way things, I'm sure the way things are structured might be different, but the way a lesson would go would be the same thing. Like the way all that, but were there differences that, that were you had to sort of get used to in terms of the way things operated or was it like almost stepping into a similar uh, academic institution? It's just in this picturesque place. Um, well, let's see. You know, some things that were similar that I was kind of surprised by was the pedagogical methods were all the same. People brought in the Haydn and the Hummel and the Aratunian and the Charlier book and uh, the Balin and and Chickowitz long tones and Stamp and Arben's book. All the stuff people brought to their lessons, um, it was all standard stuff and um, and and that was pretty pretty similar. I think where where music education is very different in in Greece is you know in in the U.S. we are very lucky. Um, to have public school music education. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, learning um, in fifth grade, trumpet, first percussion, then trumpet, and playing through high school. They don't really have that. Um, But what they have is different. I don't want to say it's better or worse. It has some positives and maybe some negatives, as they have throughout Greece, not just in Corfu, they have an amazing town band tradition. Now, when we think of town bands in America, we think of like the community band with the the local dentist who hasn't played since middle school trying to squeeze out the high C at the national (laughs) anthem or something like that. And, you know, and maybe there are some bands like that in Greece, but in Corfu specifically, um, um, it's intense. Oh, my goodness. Like the town band, you're expected if you're in the town band to take lessons and... um, You'll take less. The town bands have their own streets, their own buildings, um, you know, their own financial resources. They tour, they make recordings, um, they have uniforms. They're always doing parades constantly. Um, By way of example, how big town band traditions are, when I first got to Corfu, um, uh, they they got record rainfall. And so, the guy I was filling in for, um, Socrates, perfect Greek name, yeah. Socrates Antos, um, uh, he, he, we were going to have um, lunch like the first weekend I was there or first week I was there. And um, uh, he, I, he at, we were trying to decide where to meet. You know, I didn't really know my way around yet. He's like, well, I'll just come to your apartment. And we got all this record rain. And so it just so happened I emailed the landlord to say that there was a bad leak and uh, and so, the, it, like, worlds collided that Socrates and my landlord got there at the same time. And the crazy thing was they knew each other because my landlord played trumpet in the town band, like, years ago, you know? And when Socrates, the, the uh, Socrates now is the is, uh, conductor of one of the, um, the town bands in Corfu, the, the Monseros band. Monseros is the native son of Corfu who wrote the Greek national anthem. And um, the the probably the Monseros band is one of the most serious bands uh, in, in in Greece, and so they have this really amazing town band tradition. And the bands have different levels. Um, one of the band concerts that I went to, I heard three bands, and and the top band was like they could play anything. I wow. mean, it was like a a high level. They could play, you know, Bernstein West Side Story if they wanted to. You know what I mean? If they wanted to, and and um. Uh, and, um, the other, um, the bottom, the bottom band was basically a beginning band, but what was unique about the beginning band is it had everybody from like 
10-year-olds playing for the first time to like their grandmother mm. who thought, yeah, I think I want to learn flute. So that's kind of cool. You know what I mean? Like that's a different thing than we have in the States. We don't quite have anything like that. So while they don't have, um, you know, state-supported music education or county-supported music education or whatever, uh, civic music education, um, uh, they have this wonderful talent band tradition that's that's amazing. Do is it similar to the brass band traditions in like all of Europe and in, I know it's in Australia, New Zealand, and stuff? Is it similar to that brass banding tradition? Do they play cornets or they play in trumpets? Like, what's the what's that vibe like? You know, I think that's maybe even a good analogy. I guess there's probably some similarities to the British brass band kind of a thing. Um, definitely, there's generational playing. Like, you might sit next to your dad, and you can imagine how cool that would be to, like, get to go home after rehearsal and have your dad show you a couple extra things, you know, and have that legacy of music education. I got to correct something I just said that is maybe not true. I said there's a lack of state-supported education. That's not true. There's a lack of state-supported education in the schools, but the town bands are often employees. Uh, the town oh. band directors are employees of the municipality. Um, one of my long-term friends from Greece, George Babarakos, that I've known now for a decade, um, his job is, um, he's the town band director of Calavrita in Calavrita, Greece, which is more uh, like two hours west of Athens in mainland Greece. And uh, so he's an employee of the city of Calavrita. Um, so there, there is government-sponsored music, f- for sure, um, but, but not in the schools like it is in the U.S. No, I got gotcha. you. That's, um, that's so – it's just interesting how, yeah, those differences. And like you said, it's, I like the way that you put it. It's not necessarily better or worse one way or another. It's just the different cultures have different, um, different ways of going about doing it. So um, I like that balanced approach with mm-hmm. how you reported back to us. Um, I, I guess I'm curious. You, I think you told this to me when we were in Charlottesville in the summer, but I don't remember 100%. How did this come about? Because I'd be curious like to try to draw a line because sometimes these things come from you know, sort of unusual beginnings. You know, I made this connection with somebody and it led to this and it led to this and all of a sudden I'm vacationing slash teaching in, in Greece. I'm curious, like, if we could draw a line back to how this came about. Yeah. I've been going to Greece for about 20 years now, I guess. I guess, you know, as I get older, I keep using the phrase for the last 20 years, and it's starting to make me feel really old, you know? <laughs> but uh, I went to Greece in college for the first time with my college marching band, actually. Uh, that had nothing to do with this trip, uh, nothing directly, except I fell in love with Greece and knew I wanted to come back. And my main connection to Greece um, is through the Exploring Brass in Greece uh, workshops, which are soon to be resurrected as soon as COVID is a little more under control. So if anyone's listening and maybe wants to go to Greece, that could be a good opportunity. But uh, George Babarakos, who I mentioned, who's the director of the Calavrita Town Band, he organizes those along with George Babarako. Sorry, I just said the same name. <laughs> along with uh, Eurasimos Inonidos. And Eurasimos is the retired second trumpet in the Athens Opera. And the first trumpet, also retired in the Athens Opera, is Socrates, who I just mentioned oh, cool. is the professor at Corfu. So um, that's kind of, if I try to dr- draw the dots, that's, that's, uh, one series of dots. Back around the, I guess around 2019, 
Um, the last trip I made to Greece before this was in 2015, um, exploring brass in Greece. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic happened and hadn't been back since then. But in 2019, I, I, I think early to early in that year, um, uh, uh, around the time I was hosting NTC, I remember, because I was like, okay, I just hosted NTC. It's time for sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was planning to spend, um, I was uh, at the time thinking about a sabbatical. And at that time, the the then director of what we would call School of Music, they call it the Department of Music Studies, but it's like the director of the School of Music, basically. Uh, Eustathios Makris had offered me a, a letter of invitation to go for the 2020-2021 school year, and actually to go for the whole school year. And uh, was planning to go for the whole uh, school year and um, and 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 do a, like a year-long sabbatical. Well, then COVID happened, and so um, I canceled. Well, actually, I, what I postponed, and just a variety of things. I won't go all the details. It just worked out better to go for one semester instead of the whole year. Um, just a variety of reasons it was better. And so um, I postponed for this year. And uh, I think when I spoke to you in Charlottesville, I was still like a little trepidatious if it was going to happen or not, because I was nervous with COVID. Mm -hmm. I was not just nervous about COVID in general, but I was really nervous about them being on Zoom. It would have been a real drag to go to Corfu and teach Zoom lessons from my apartment, you know? Uh, But... I think it was either, I think it was right after Charlottesville, because uh, didn't we, wasn't Charlottesville in June this past summer? We were early this year, I think. I think so. We? Yeah, I think we were done before the 4th of July. We, we definitely yeah. were, because we spent it with family. Yeah, so it was like right after Charlottesville that the Minister of Education said that Ionian University would be in person. And so as soon as Ionian University was in person, I was like, I'm going. Yeah, cool. So I probably booked my flight like right after that, yeah. right after Charlottesville, I bet. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I don't have to tell this whole story, but I just, I have a few stories where it's like one chance thing that happened over here led to this this sort of cool career opportunity, if you want to call it that. And uh, I think sometimes, at least in my mind, I can get into this space where you know, with an orchestral position, let's say it's like you win the audition and the job is yours. You know, it's like we, I sometimes forget that a lot of the opportunities and a lot of the gigs and a lot of the teaching and stuff can happen through the connections that you make. And then, you know, somebody can't do something and then you get asked to, that's how I got into Charlottesville, stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was just curious if that was sort of something that happened there. Um, I know that I should have told I should have told you there was an international audition and I had to play the Brandenburg up an octave or <laughs> yeah, something right, like that. Right. But it's it's more of a networking story I than think that. It's, yeah. I, but I think that's important, <laughs> you know, because I think, you know, being somebody that people would say, who do we who, who do we want? And then they think, oh, Jason Doval, that'd be great. You know what I mean? Being that kind of person that somebody you would come to their mind is got you this opportunity. And I just think. I think it's important that we all, you know, this idea of burning bridges and that kind of thing. Like sometimes it can feel like you're in a bad situation and you just want to say, I'm out, like I'm done. I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. But like there's some merit and some value. For example, when I didn't get tenure in Indianapolis, I was upset, right? And I remember I called uh, Barbara Butler uh, that day. 
And Barbara said to me, you need to make sure that when you leave there, they're there, they will miss you when you're gone and not just be angry, you know, and be like, oh, thank goodness Ryan's gone. He was just, you know, a loose cannon for the past last little bit of time there. And so and I have great relationships with with these people. And, you know, I'm saying like, who knows, like where things could do. And so just, oh, you know, maintaining great relationships can oftentimes give us great outcomes sometimes, I think. For sure. You know, you mentioned before, earlier in the conversation about um, like uh, the social networks that you have, not like Facebook, but the social networks that you have uh, in college and music school and and partying with and practicing with and hanging out with, uh, with um, uh, music majors. We were at that time talking how important and valuable that is as your growth as a musician, but uh, I, that's lifelong, yeah. as you and I both know, you know, like I still talk to people from college and graduate school and they are great and tremendous resources, uh, for me. Um, I, I, f- funny story, uh, you know, the trumpet job market is, is horrendous right now. And especially in college teaching and, uh, a, a, bu- a buddy of mine who I went to college with was, uh, offered an adjunct trumpet position and, uh, uh, my my buddy doesn't even really work in music full time anymore, but he is a well known uh, freelancer in the area and still plays. But he's got a day job, like as a computer programmer. And uh, he just texts him. He's like, "Look, this is like joke. I just got asked to be a trumpet professor at this school. Why would I want to do that?" I'm like, "You might not, but I know like a hundred DMA students that would cut off their right arm right. to yeah. have that job." And literally, like in 48 hours. My friend's joke text transitioned to one of my students being hired in that position. Wow. And it was like, just, you know what I mean? Like, what are the chances of something like that happening? Yeah. But it it was because, you know, again, 20 years ago, we were roommates and we've kept in touch. And it led to an opportunity, not for me directly, but for one of my students. All right, so you've said this 20 years ago thing a few times. And so I want to pick I want to pick at this for a second because I think it's something I'm actually not struggling with, but I'm really trying to wrap up my head around sometimes how long it takes to get to a position where you're like this is the thing that I wanted in life or it's close to the thing I wanted in life because like it's not always the first thing straight out of the gate. And it's easy to look at people who have great positions and great great teaching positions or orchestral positions or whatever they're doing. It's easy to look at them and say, wow, life must be great, right? But it doesn't take into account everything that happened before that. And so the two things I would like is for you to describe sort of the, the jobs that you, because you were at NSU, right, before mm-hmm. that. Just describing how long you were there. You said you've been at University of Kentucky for 15 years now, right? No, 15 years total. I've been at UK nine years. Oh, nine years. So 15 years total. And just, you know, what does, how do I describe this? What does, what does your life look like? You know, what does it look like? What is it, you know, because I'm sure it's not just like, oh, I just like work 10 hours a week for my teach, you know, and obviously trumpet professors know this, people who are in this, in this, you know, environment and community know but for those of us that aren't aware of what life looks like for someone like you and what it has looked like for a long time to be able to get to a point where you're, you know, in a position that you're in, I just kind of would be curious for you to to try to share and explain a little bit of what, what that looks like. Yeah. Well, in 2007, I was a young pup who knew nothing. I was a second year 
DMA student, 25 years old at the University of, Con- uh, sorry, where did I go to school again? University of North Texas. And um, I thought, I'm going to apply for a few jobs. I had no business. I wasn't done with a degree, but I did. And I got that job in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And uh, let me tell you, I count my blessings every day that I won that job. At the time, it seemed like, well, this isn't so hard, but uh, it, 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 I was I now look back and realize what a miracle it was that I, that I got that job. And so um, I had that um, job for six years. What's funny, it seemed rather easy to get that job. And I thought, well, this must be easy. I'll, I'll be teaching at Juilliard in two years, you know? Yeah. And I applied for every, every year I applied for jobs for six years. And it took quite a while. Um, I did have a number of phone interviews, Skype interviews, live interviews. Um, gosh, probably six to 10 live interviews at schools over those uh, uh, six years. But it wasn't until 2013 that I had the interview uh, at UK and and won that job. And it wasn't like I disliked Oklahoma. Um, I had made a lot of friends there. You've lived in Oklahoma. You know, there are a lot of great people there and a great musical culture there and some great performing opportunities. I'm really grateful for those six years. But you know, my family's from Virginia, which I, I said already before. Uh, my wife is from New York, and here we were in Oklahoma, you know, and so like it was it was tough to have relations. I have four sisters, you know, and 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 lots of cousins and uh, family, and I, I wanted to be closer to the East Coast. Um, we meant you mentioned playing in Charlottesville. Uh, I play in Charlottesville, of course, in the summers. I play in the D.C. area a lot with some early music groups. I play in Maryland. Like, a lot of work I have is in East Coast. I'm an East Coast boy. I want to be back in this area. And I want to be at a big school. Let's face it. I want to be at a you know uh, a flagship school with a graduate program and, and all those sorts of things. And so in 2013, I won the job at UK. Uh, if you want to talk more about the job, thing, search app. I can tell you about all the all the auditions I didn't win, but just take my word for it for the moment. There were a lot I, did, I applied for and didn't get. But I got the job in 2013 at UK, and I'm now in my ninth year there. And I love it. It's a great school. I have great colleagues. What does my day look like and my, my life look like? Um, I try to teach. Uh, I said already we have 25 to 30 students. I actually try to teach everybody, which is hard. Um, and I, I've been experimenting with different ways to make that work. Um, I do have three TAs. Um, if I'm being totally honest, I don't know how I'm going to do it this semester because I tweak it a little bit, but, um, everyone who's a music major, I see every week for a lesson. Um, sometimes if they're freshmen, I might teach them for a half an hour and the TA might teach them for a half an hour. Um, um, I've done things like that before. Um, most students actually, I teach an hour every week. I mostly use the TAs for supplemental lessons. Like a, I have a TA who's very strong in jazz, a stronger jazz background than me. And he's been on cruise ships and played professionally and stuff like that. And so I might have him work with some students um, uh, for a half hour just on jazz stuff, even if the student gets a full hour from me. So yeah, it's pretty busy. I, I do usually teach 23 to 26 lessons a week. And I know that's insane. And I know I just turned 40 this year. And I know that when I'm 50, I'm not going to have the stamina to do do that. But for the moment, I feel like I can do that for a few more years. I try to squeeze that into Monday through Thursday and take Fridays off, um, whether it's because I need a break or maybe I'm going out of town to play with an out-of-town group or something like that. 
and uh, or maybe I'm going to go visit a public school on Friday or something like that. And um, and I teach. I mentioned already. I see. I have some trumpet ensembles and baroque trumpet ensembles and stuff like that that I do. Um, and uh, we have weekly studio class. One of my favorite parts about my job is the faculty brass quintet. Uh, we meet twice a week. We just met. We actually just met today for the first time since April, because last fall not only was I on sabbatical, but the trombone professor was on sabbatical and the horn professor wow. was on maternity leave. So uh, Did the poor tuba. Prof- <laughs> Did you? We <laughs> sort well, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we sort of timed it that way. That way we could still be active. And so the quintet we do recording projects. We just had a CD come out. Um, and um, my favorite, in spite of the fact I mentioned, wow, I teach 25 lessons a week. Well, that's only 25 hours a week. It's still not a full-time job, right? <laughs> no, it's actually, um, I still feel like a teaching college provides a lot of autonomy. Um, if I do need to go out of town for an out-of-town gig, um, I can reschedule lessons in the evenings or on weekends. And I, I always try to do that. And um I love having summers off to do things, you know, like Charlottesville Opera. I love having, you know, winter break, spring break, um, all those sorts of things. I'm lucky at UK that my day is all trumpet. Uh, I I only teach trumpet and Baroque trumpet. Um, I don't teach any other classes. Uh, That's not true. I do teach every fourth semester Baroque performance practice. In fact, I'm teaching it this semester. Um, We have a certificate in Baroque trumpet and... um, I teach that class. Uh, it's sort of a class. I mean, it's not lessons. It, it is a class, yeah. but it's it's not me teaching three days a week. It's mostly me going to lunch a couple times a week with my students and talking about bro trumpet a little bit. Sure, sounds very good. If I'm being honest, <laughs> but so that's what my life looks like. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to come to UK was because when I was at NSU, yes, I taught trumpet, but I had other stuff I had to do, like music appreciation and brass methods, and and I didn't mind those things, but. I'm better at teaching trumpet than I am at teaching, you know, arranging and other courses like that. Sure, yeah. When you were applying, so you described these, I think it was six to 10 live auditions, and that's not counting the ones that you didn't make it that far in, so we're just going to assume there's more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did thoughts, did you struggle with thoughts of like, I'm never going to get something different, and like, am I going to, you know, like, am I going to reach some sort of thing or or whatever, or were you like, you know what? I have a great, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. And if something else could work out, that would be amazing. But I mean, just kind of where were you? Cause I feel like it's, it's easy to get into this space of like, well, I have this good thing here, but then you start trying to stretch yourself a little bit and rejection can kind of start to like get into your head a little bit of like, well, maybe I'm not even good enough. Maybe it was a fluke that I'm even here in the first place, you know? I I just I'm curious if you struggled with any of those types of things uh, in that whole process of applying to so many places and not not hearing anything back or or not making it. Yeah, you know what's funny? The first year I was in, um, uh, well, I, when I first got to NSU, I thought, well, this is so easy. What I didn't say is when I was at UNT, I probably applied. I don't remember how many jobs I applied to, but there were three schools that I was invited to come for a live interview. Um, so I thought golly, this is easy. Uh, and, uh, and then, um, I figured I'd be in Oklahoma for a couple of years by the third or fourth year after you get rejection letters. Um, you know, in some ways getting invited to do a live audition and then getting a rejection 
is harder than getting an altogether rejection. Because when you actually go there and you play and you meet them and you shake their hand and they ask you questions about how you teach and you sit in their faculty quintet and then they say no and they've seen you and you went there and you like you saw yourself in that city and imagine yourself buying it. Like, it is hard. When you just get a thanks but no thanks letter and you didn't have to invest anything beyond that, it, it, for me anyway, I almost prefer that. Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, in college interviews, sometimes it's like a two-day event, you know, and you got to like teach a studio class, go to dinner, go to lunch, go to breakfast, uh, play play a, a recital, um, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so after about four or five years, well, two things happened. The negative was I kept getting rejections, but the positive was I was getting more and more work. I played a lot in Tulsa. You know, a lot of those Tulsa guys, mm-hmm. like- Tim McFadden and Steve Hafner or Rob Bailey, those guys are great players and it's a really good orchestra. And I loved playing with them. And I was getting to play not just in the orchestra, but the ballet and the opera. And, you know, I was still in my 20s and to get to play all that music, um, it was like a postdoctoral fellowship in an orchestra. You know what I mean? And and then I won a, a third trumpet job in an orchestra in, Oklahoma, in, a, in Arkansas. And then I won a first trumpet job in another orchestra in Arkansas. And so I was like pretty busy playing. And I was like, you know, this isn't so bad. So my f- at the end of my fifth year, I thought, I'm going to buy a house. This is going to work out great. And I kid you not, I bought a house and like nine months later had to put it up for sale because I won the UK job. Oh my gosh, job. wow. <laughs> that's so crazy that it would work out like that. It, it did. Yeah. So that that's the bad side to coming to UK. Uh, the only bad thing was the money I lost on that 10-month mortgage I had, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, I would say too, you know, in an orchestra audition... I would say what you're describing about it being harder that you go there and you shake their hand would be the equivalent of like being runner up or making the finals. Yeah. Like you're so close, but you can still have a level of like, uh, you know, it was my playing, you know, it wasn't me, but yeah. I'm imagining for what you're doing, di- you're interviewing them. You're talking about you and your style and how you want to do it. And then to have a rejection from there, I'm sure it's way easier to feel like they're rejecting you as a person and not as like a teacher, you know? Completely. You know, we never know how our playing or how our teaching is perceived by others, but there were definitely some auditions. Don't get me wrong. There were some auditions where I walked away thinking I played bad. I I definitely had that feeling. But there were, I can think of two in particular auditions where I walked off stage thinking I couldn't have played any better than that. That was, that was my A game. That was my 11 on a scale of one to 10 of what I can Mm -hmm. do. And just feeling like, man, I got this in a bag. You know, that was, I didn't chip anything. I didn't, I played with a good sound. I had a good program. I hit the high notes. <laughs> and then and then they call you a week later and say, we've hired another candidate. It's, you must think, well, did I forget deodorant that day? Right. Is it that I wear the wrong clothes? Is my is my personality that abrasive? <laughs> like, what, what, what is it, you know? Yeah, no, I can imagine that's really tough. Um while we're on this topic of struggles, I guess we had talked about this, you know, before the interview. Um, are there any other struggles you've gone through that you feel like sort of have helped, uh, you know, guide you or or set, you know, be like, I've gone through this, but now I 
really hold fast to this thing that I learned that I think is super helpful. Like I said, it could be, you know, personal life. It could be professional. It could be playing related. If you've gone through like major, some people are like, I went through, you know, Tom Hooten's like, I went through like temperature changes. And now like, I understand it's like, he understands so much about how things work because I think of all of those struggles he's had. So I'm curious if you have anything like that. I think for me, the biggest thing um, is that in college, high school too, but mostly college and early college, um, I had a lot of physical pain when I played trumpet almost every time I played, to the point where I almost changed my major for that reason. And uh, not, not the reasons I mentioned earlier, <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the, the joking ways. But uh, but uh, it was very difficult. And um, long story short, I was able to overcome that pain. I studied Alexander Technique. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that. I think North Tech, Northwestern has uh, Hennis, full-time yeah. Alexander. Yeah, you got it. So you know, you probably know more about it than I do. But um, uh, it, it not only did that... Uh, uh, fix my pain problems. But I had to kind of relearn not just how to play trumpet, but how to sit in a chair, how to hold a pencil, uh, <laughs> like simple things. And I, 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 I learned um, how the trumpet created tension in my playing. And I learned how anxiety created tension in my body. And through that process became a develop more self-awareness as you probably know self-awareness is a big uh, a principle of alexander technique being more intentional i don't mean just being intentional in terms of how i hold the trumpet but being more intentional in general in life you know and um so that has helped me i i, I said earlier i'm i'm now 40 i never have pain when i play never i haven't had any pain in my in playing um I mean, aside from like running into a door and knocking, like bumping my <laughs> lip or something like sure, that. Sure. I mean, I mean, playing related pain. Uh, I've, you know, cut myself shaving or something like yeah. that before. But aside from the freak accident kind of things, I've had no pain in playing since I was probably a sophomore in college. And it's changed the way I teach because I, I really have a heart for people playing correctly, healthfully playing without tension. Uh, even though today was more of an informal day, I had a student come in and uh, it's funny, we we didn't get past like the first half of the first page of the solo he brought in because I was had such a vigilance for physically how they were playing and wanting them to do all the f- th- things physically correct. Um, so it was tough in college because I, like I said, it almost made me want to quit. But by growing through that, it's, it's not only have... Ha- um, it caused me to have a life of of, of pain free playing. And I'll tell you what, since I know that you're a weightlifter, I'm nothing like what you do. But as you know, I have a nominal interest in longevity <laughs> yeah. and trying to get on a treadmill or a weight bench from from time to time to try to be more healthy. I'm not going for the strongman contest. I'm I'm more trying to like go for longevity and you know be healthy. But uh, but uh, uh, I'll say that what I've learned from Alexander Technique through the trumpet has really helped me. And, you know, I never, maybe I'm doing it wrong, Ryan, but I never have a workout and feel pain the next day, you know? So I think um, having those struggles with pain early, in a way, I'm thankful for those because it's helped me and it's helped me in my teaching. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
Yeah, I have a little bit of experience with Alexander Technique. And I mean, mine was purely production. You know, oh, I just took a class. Like, it was, I was like, I need a class to do. Oh, I got Alexander Technique. But, you know, he, he would have us play and he would tweak some stuff here and there. And I would sound better. So I was always like purely, what is this going to do for my playing? You know, it's so cool that you effectively eradicated pain to the point where it's like, I don't have to quit my instrument. You know, I'm sure there's other people out there who are experiencing similar things that maybe that's a good jumping off point for them is to check out more about Alexander technique or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been awesome. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time and uh, I would love for you to share how people get in, can get in contact with you if they're interested in UK or they really enjoyed what you said or there are people who are experiencing, you know, like, you know, anxiety and tension and they're playing or they're, you know, maybe even physical pain just to maybe reach out to you and, and, and try to be pointed in, in a direction. Uh, if there are ways to get in touch with you, uh, I would love for you to share them so we can know. Sure. Well, um, I'm pretty easy to find on the UK School of Music website. Uh, uh, my email is jason.dovel, J-A-S-O-N dot D-O-V-E-L at U-K-Y dot E-D-U. And um, if you can't catch that or I spoke too quickly, you can find me on the School of Music website. Or you can contact me through my website, which is jasondovel.com. And I check my email every day and email's a great way to get in contact with me. Um, and if, if people are listening and want to chat in person, I'm, I always go to NTC and I always go to the ITG conferences. And, um, like I mentioned, I, I do events here at UK, so you're welcome to come to campus or come see me at one of these other events. I'd love to, to meet people and, and to help you in any way I can. And if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that at that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or you had any other feelings at all, I would appreciate it if you would give it a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find it too. Jason, thank you so much for <laughs> hanging with me for a little bit. It's great to see you again. I'm glad the Grease trip was was great. It's great to get debriefed on it. And uh, yeah, I'm just glad we had this opportunity. Thanks, Ryan. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. Uh, I would also like to thank Brandon Yoakum on his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And then most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Rip.